Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the powerful messages we've seen this summer through your prophet Isaiah. And I just pray, God, that you would open our hearts once again this morning to hear from you. Thank you, Jesus, for the the powerful message that we're going to see here today in chapter 49. And I just pray that you would help me to communicate this clearly to my friends because it's so powerful, Lord. I just want us to walk away today inspired and encouraged uh, once again by who you are and your promises to us. So we just ask for your presence, for your Holy Spirit, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> when I was in sixth grade, going into sixth grade, my family moved to a new church. <clears throat> I had grown up at Grace Church in Edina, and uh, in sixth grade, my parents moved to Wooddale Church in Eden Prairie. And so I was a new kid going into a new youth group and really didn't know any friends uh, at that time. I had been going to a private Christian school and was just transitioning to the public school. So I, 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 just, I didn't know anybody going into this new youth group. Well, the first youth group event I went on with, uh, with Wooddale Church's junior high group that summer was a trip to the Metrodome for a Minnesota Twins game. And I was, you know, obviously nervous as a young, you know, 12, 13-year-old boy, uh, hoping I'd find some friends, hoping there'd be somebody there who'd want to hang out with me. And, and so, uh, you know, with a lot of anxiety and butterflies in my stomach, I got on the bus at Wooddale Church, and we started driving downtown. And, you know, as I sat there on the bus, sure enough, a couple guys came up and sat next to me and started talking to me, and, and uh, we got to know each other. We chatted the whole way down, so I'm feeling better. You know, hey, this is great. I got some guys, and they you know, seem like cool dudes, and I'm going to hang out with these guys. You know, I'm going to have somebody to sit with at the game. And we get to the Metrodome, and as we're walking into the concourse, all of a sudden these two guys just bolt and completely ditch me in the middle of the crowded Metrodome. And I'm just standing there all alone, looking around. I don't recognize anybody else from our church. I didn't know anybody. And I'm just like there in this huge crowd all by myself. And I just remember my heart just sank. I, was, I felt so betrayed. I felt so abandoned with these two guys who had been treating me like a friend for the last half hour driving down there. And then they just ditch me, laughing as they're running away, thinking this is the funniest thing ever. Well, I went and I sat down out in the outfield and I just sat there just completely broken and isolated and alone for the next few hours watching the Twins game. And our youth pastor had said that uh, in the seventh inning, the youth group would meet underneath the large American flag out in the outfield. That's where we would all meet. So we could sit anywhere we wanted during the game, but meet underneath the American flag and that's where we're going to meet to get together so we can all head home together at the end of the game. So I'm sitting all by myself out in the outfield, and the seventh inning comes along, and so I start making my way under the big American flag, and I get over there, and I don't see anybody from our youth group. I don't see anybody I recognize. I don't see our youth pastor. And now I'm moving from being completely emotionally upset to being terrified that I've been forgotten at the Metrodome. And I'm sitting under this American flag looking around, and I have no idea what to do. I mean, we didn't have cell phones back in those days, and, and I'm thinking, like, what do I do? I'm 12 years old, and I don't see anybody. So I sat there trying to figure out what was going to happen, and all of a sudden, I noticed a couple kids come trickling around, sitting in the seats around me, and pretty soon a few more came filtering in, and then all of a sudden, our youth pastor came walking in. 
And sure enough, the whole group ended up meeting there under the American flag. Well, what had happened is I had showed up at the beginning of the seventh inning, and what I missed on the bus ride down was the youth pastor telling us we were going to meet there at the end of the seventh inning. So I was sitting there in complete fear, thinking I had been abandoned, that I had been forgotten. But sure enough, they came back for me. And those two guys, by the way, who ditched me, they thought it was really funny. And uh, I ended up thinking they were big jerks for about the next two years. But uh, lo and behold, they ended up becoming some of my best friends. And one of them actually ended up being one of my college roommates for uh, a few years at Bethel College. So uh, God worked that out in in a funny way, too. But, you know, friends, there's nothing worse, really, seriously, in life. Is there anything worse than feeling like you've been abandoned? Is there anything worse than feeling like you're all alone, like you've been forgotten? I mean, really, I, don't, I can't think of many things that are worse than, than that feeling of being totally alone, being left behind, being a forgotten. And you know, when you think about it spiritually, that's about the worst thing you can go through spiritually as well. The feeling that God has forgotten me. The feeling that God doesn't care, that maybe God's just forsaken me and he's left and I'm all on my own. It's a terrifying place if you've ever been there, feeling God's forgotten you. Well, this morning we're going to look at a passage in the book of Isaiah where the nation of Israel felt that very way. They felt that they had been forgotten by God. They felt like they had been forsaken by God, like they were all on their own. But God here in the book of Isaiah, he unveils his plan for them. And he makes his promises to them of his faithfulness. And he pledges his fidelity to them that he hasn't forgotten them. And so this morning we're going to look at a really powerful passage of Scripture. And what we're going to see as we read this passage of Scripture, we're going to see in this passage, we're going to see a plan, we're going to see a problem, and we're going to see a proof. A plan, a problem, and a proof. So I want you to be listening for these as we go through this passage together. It's Isaiah chapter 49. We're going to read verses 1 through 18 today. And then I'm going to come back and share some thoughts on this powerful passage. All right, take a look at the screen with me. Isaiah 49, 1 through 18. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with God. Next slide, please. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see you and rise up, princes will see you and bow down, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. This is what the Lord says, in the time of my favor I will answer you, and in the day of salvation I will help you, I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances. To say to the captives, come out, and to those in darkness, be free. 
They will feed beside the roads they find, and find pasture on every barren hill. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat upon them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. I will turn all my mountains into roads and my highways will be raised up. See, they will come from afar, from the north, some from the west, some from the region of Sinem. Shout for joy, O heavens, rejoice, O earth. Burst into song, O mountains, for the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. Your sons hasten back, and those who laid you waste depart from you. Lift up your eyes and look around. All your sons gather and come to you. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, you will wear them as ornaments. You will put them on like a bride. What an incredible passage we see here. God has a plan. God has a plan. This is our first point that I want to highlight this morning. God had a plan for the nation of Israel. Verses 1 through 13, God begins to unfold and unveil his plan for the coming Messiah, who would be the deliverer of the people of Israel. God had a plan. I don't know if you saw the news a few weeks ago, what took place Thursday, July 7th. Incredible story. Delta Flight 2845 took off from Minneapolis that morning, headed to Rapid City, South Dakota, on what was supposed to be a routine flight. In fact, the the pilot had flown this route hundreds of times. And as the plane headed west to Rapid City, it's not a long flight, it's about an hour and a half. The, The flight went great, and the pilot, he looked off in the distance, and sure enough, he saw the runway out in the distance, so the pilot, he brought the plane down for a landing, and it was a picture-perfect landing, and everybody was happy. They thought they had arrived safely at their destination, and all of a sudden, from out of the hangars of the airport came a dozen military police jeeps with lights blazing, sirens blaring, and they started circling this airplane. Now, can you imagine, friends, being on this airplane, and you're thinking, hey, we just landed in Rapid City, we're at our destination, and all of a sudden, there's a dozen military jeeps with soldiers with M16 rifles aimed at you circling the airplane? Well, friends, it turns out that this pilot, because he ignored the plane's navigation equipment, he took his eyes off the plane's navigation equipment, and instead of landing at Rapid City Municipal Airport, the pilot looked out the window, he saw a runway below him, he ended up landing 12 miles east of Rapid City at Ellsworth United States Air Force Base. (laughs) Can you imagine that? Talk about landing in the wrong destination. I I had such a hard time believing that this could happen. I did a Google search and I I typed in airplanes landing at the wrong airport. I found a USA Today article from this year. Earlier this year, USA Today had a story. Do you know that since 1990, over 150 commercial airliners have landed at the wrong airport? I mean, are you kidding me? Over 150 times has this happened in the last 20 years. Landing in the wrong destination. Friends, let me tell you something this morning. God never lands us in the wrong destination. You never have to worry about God missing the mark for your life. God always takes his people 
exactly where he wants them to be. And in the same way, God had a plan for the nation of Israel, even in their exile. This is the whole point of the book of Isaiah. God had a plan for, the, for Israel. God wanted Israel to know that what they're going to be tempted to see as abandonment is really God's loving discipline in their life for their ultimate good. When they think God has left them, God had a plan. He was gonna use the exile to discipline them, to bring them back into conformity with his will for their lives. And you see, like a loving parent who sometimes has to discipline their child to teach them and to guide them, God will also discipline his people because he loves us and he wants what's best for us. Take a look at Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12 says this, and have you forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons? My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. You see, friends, sometimes God disciplines us because he's trying to correct some sin in our lives. He disciplines us to bring us back into conformity with his will. And this was the case with the nation of Israel in their exile to Babylon. They had continuously rejected him. They had continuously rebelled against him. And so God allowed them to experience the exile as a form of discipline to hopefully turn their hearts to repentance and to bring them back into conformity with his will. This was his plan for the nation of Israel. It was his plan all along. Discipline is often about correcting some sin issue in our lives. And so, you know, for some of you, you may be thinking, man, my life just seems to be falling apart around me. And it just seems like I've, I've lost God's favor in my life. And, and if that's where you're at today, maybe you need to step back and have a, have a heart-to-heart talk with the Lord and say, God, is there some sin in my life that you're trying to reveal to me to correct me, to bring me back into conformity with your will? Because God, like a loving parent, will sometimes discipline us to bring us back to himself. Now, discipline isn't always about punishment, okay? Sometimes God disciplines us just because he's trying to conform us. He's trying to mold us and shape us and build a particular type of character in our lives. I remember when I was a high school kid, I used to dread the first week of August rolling around every year. I was a football player at Eden Prairie High School, and, and uh, football's a big deal in Eden Prairie if you, if you follow high school sports. And every time the first week of August would roll around, that meant two-a-day practices were starting. And I used to dread two-a-day practices. We would go into the high school at 7 a.m. and get ready, work out, get changed. Then we'd be out on the football field from 8 until 11. We'd take a two-hour lunch break, and then we'd have to come back to the school in the afternoon for another three hours of practices. And our coaches would just grind us, and they would just wear us down. We would dread those practices. But the reason our coaches put us through that torment was because they were trying to shape us. They were trying to conform us into a championship caliber football team. 
And in the same way, God will sometimes allow us to go through trials in our lives because he's trying to shape us and build a particular type of character in us. Take a look at what James chapter one says about this. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. See, friends, what we need to understand here when we look at the story of the exile of Israel is that God will sometimes allow trials into our lives. But rest assured, friends, God has a plan, and he has a purpose in all of them. And what we've seen in the book of Isaiah this summer is that while God was going to discipline Israel for their rebellion, it would be through this discipline that their ultimate deliverance would come. Not just physical deliverance, but spiritual deliverance from their sins. God's plan was always to restore the nation of Israel. Remember, friends, God had made a covenant with them. He had made a promise to them, and God keeps his promises. Look at Genesis chapter 12. All the way back in the time of Abraham, God said, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Friends, God had made this promise to Israel. He wasn't going to abandon them. He was going to leave them in Babylon, lost in exile forever. God always had a plan to restore Israel. And so in recent weeks here, we've seen God increasingly unveil his plan to Israel for their ultimate restoration. The last couple weeks, we've seen chapters 41 through 48, where God promised Israel that he was going to physically restore them. Through Cyrus, this conqueror, Cyrus the Persian, who was going to come in 150 years. 150 years down the road, God was going to raise up this man, Cyrus, who would be this conqueror of nations. But Cyrus was going to be God's instrument to physically restore Israel to the promised land. It was part of his plan all along. And now as we turn to chapters 49 and 55 today and in the coming weeks, what we're going to see is God wasn't just concerned with Israel's physical restoration, but he also was concerned with their spiritual restoration. See, the, the physical restoration, that wasn't the big problem. Right? We look at this and we think, oh man, they're in exile. Their, their, their city's been destroyed. They've been sent away as captives. That's a major issue. But that wasn't the major issue. The major issue was the sin in their hearts. The major issue has been their rebellion against God. That was the issue that God was more concerned about. So God says, yes, I am going to restore you physically, but I'm more concerned about your hearts. And so here's what I'm going to do for you. I am going to restore you spiritually. And I'm going to send a Messiah who will save you and save you from your sins. And this is what we read about here in in verses 1 through 13 this morning. God begins to unveil his plan for this figure he calls the servant. This servant who would come and save Israel from their sins. And as we read earlier in our passage this morning here in chapter 49, God begins to reveal some clues to us about who this servant would be who we now know as the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. Take a look at some of these clues. Who is the servant that we see here in Isaiah chapter 49? Verse two says that the servant's mouth is like a sharpened sword. 
And friends, we can't help but think to Revelations 1, 16, where the apostle John sees this vision of Jesus Christ in the throne room of heaven, and John says a double-edged sword came out of his mouth. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says that the word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. We read in 49, verse 3, God calls the servant Israel. Wait a minute, I thought the servant was the coming Messiah. How can the servant be Israel? But friends, here's the thing. Remember, the servant was going to come to save Israel from their sins. How could Israel save Israel? No, this servant will be Israel as Israel was truly meant to be. This servant, this Israel, will perfectly display God's splendor to the world. Verse 4 tells us that the servant laments the fact that he labors in vain. And again, we can't help but think about Jesus and his ministry here 2,000 years ago and how he was rejected by his own people. The Jews despised him. They chose not to follow him. And yet, in verse 7 of chapter 49, Isaiah prophesies that kings and princes will bow before him. And friends, I can't help but think of the Apostle Paul's words in Philippians 2 where God says that he gave Jesus the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Isaiah was painting this picture of the coming Messiah. Verse 6 says that the servant would restore Israel. But not just Israel, Isaiah 49, 6 says that the servant would also be a light to the Gentiles and he would bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Friends, no prophet ever did that. No nation ever did that. Only the Messiah, Jesus Christ. John 1, verse 4 says, in him was life and that life was the light of men. John three sixteen says that God so loved the whole world that he gave his one and only son. Jesus in his last commission to his followers said go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations see Jesus was going to be a light not only to the Jews but also to the Gentiles and as we're going to see next week these clues who is the Messiah who is this servant these clues are going to climax in chapter 52 which is known as the suffering servant passage which is one of the clearest prophecies in the Old Testament pointing to Jesus Christ, who gave his life as a ransom for our sins. You see, friends, God had a plan for Israel all along. He had a plan for their exile and a plan for their ultimate restoration. And God has a plan for you too. You can trust him. God has a plan and a purpose for all of us. Anything you're going through, any trial you might be experiencing, it's all a part of God's plan for your life. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, in fact, a verse that God gave the nation of Israel to encourage them while they were being sent off to their exile, Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in a future. Friends, Jeremiah came 100 years after Isaiah. He lived through all the stuff that Isaiah was prophesying. All this doom and gloom and the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile and the sending off to captivity. Jeremiah lived through that. 
And yet in the midst of that, seeing his friends and his family sent away and the nation destroyed and the walls of Jerusalem torn down, in the midst of that, God gives Jeremiah this promise that I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. What an incredible God. God has a plan for you, friends. No matter what you might be facing or what you might be experiencing, you need to know and trust that God has a plan and his plans are good. But this leads us to the second point of our passage this morning. Point number two, while God had a plan, Israel had a problem. Israel had a problem. In verse 14, we see Israel cry out, but God has forsaken us. We've been forgotten by God. Wait a minute. What's going on here? God has just spent the last 13 verses telling these people that he had a plan for them. And now they're crying out, we've been forsaken. God, you've forgotten us. They shouldn't have doubts like this, right? Friends, I am so glad that this verse is here in Scripture. I'm so glad that God lets us see his people's doubts right after he had revealed his promises to them. Because isn't this the way life is? I mean, how many of us have walked out of church on a Sunday morning uplifted by the promises of God's word, ready to take on the world, only to question those very same promises the next day? I know I have. Some of you know I've had the chance to speak at apologetics conferences all over, and it's very interesting. One of the most common questions I get when I speak at these apologetics conferences, people often ask me, they'll say, Jason, is it okay for believers to have doubts? Is it okay for a Christian to have doubts? Friends, absolutely. If the Bible teaches us anything at all, it's that God is big enough to handle our doubts. In fact, God does some of his best work in our lives in the midst of our doubts. When I was in seminary, I had the opportunity a couple summers to work at a Christian camp out in California. I've shared some stories about this with you many times. and I was thinking this week about an incredible experience I had with one of the students I was counseling one summer. I had this young man in my cabin, and the whole week, this guy, he was just spiritually hardened to God. I mean, it was like chapel times would come around, and he would just tune out when we were having our cabin devotionals. He just, it was just clear he wanted nothing to do with it. He was having a blast with everything else, but anytime spiritual things would come up, he was just like... Didn't want, didn't want any part of it. So one afternoon, I, I took him and we went and met with the guy who was serving as the campus, uh, the camp pastor that week. And the three of us sat down and we, we started talking and we asked this young man, we said, you know, tell me, what do you, what do you think about God? What do you think about God and all the things that we've been talking about this week here at camp? And this young man, he was probably 12, 13 years old, he, he just says, I hate God. 
And we were like, wow. Why, why, why do you hate God? He said, because everything you're saying this week is a bunch of baloney. He said, my daddy died last year. And I prayed for months that God would save my daddy and he didn't care. And he let my daddy die and I hate God because he has forgotten me and he has abandoned me and he could care less about me. The campus pastor looked at this young boy with just incredible love and compassion and he he said to this young man, he said, what's your cabin doing this afternoon? He said, well, we're going, we're going water skiing out on the lake. And the campus pastor, he said, you know, I want you to skip water skiing. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back to your cabin while all your cabin mates are away this afternoon. I want you to get on your bed and I want you to take your pillow and I want you to beat on that pillow as if you are beating on God himself. And you take that pillow and you just let it out and you hammer away on that pillow and you tell God how angry you are and how much you hate him and how upset you are at him. And this young man, he went back to the cabin that afternoon and spent a half hour raging against God. Later that evening, he came back and he had tears in his eyes and he said to me, Jason, something incredible happened. He said, I was beating on my pillow and all of a sudden I felt the overwhelming love of God surround me and embrace me. changed his whole life. He experienced the overwhelming love of God. Friends, I love, I love the raw honesty that we see in the Bible. Is God big enough for our doubts? You better believe it. I mean, just read the book of Psalms for Pete's sake. King David, half the Psalms are Psalms of lament, crying out to God, have you forgotten me? Have you abandoned me? And I think a lot of us can relate to Israel here. God, you've forgotten us. We've been forsaken. I remember when I was in my second year of seminary, I went through one of those spiritually dark times in my life. Some, sometimes they're referred to as the dark night of the soul. A girl I had been dating had recently broke up with me, and uh, the job that I had in campus ministries at Bethel College was discontinued, so I had lost this position, this job that I loved working with students. And I felt like I was just like, just lost, floating out there spiritually with <laughs> no mooring whatsoever. And so I dropped out of seminary for a semester. I ended up moving out to Southern California. I lived in a beach house with a buddy from Westmont College and about five other guys. And trust me, it wasn't glamorous at all. <laughs> and I was just floating lost and spiritually just broken, totally disconnected from God. I remember coming home and I was hanging out in a Bible study with a bunch of buddies from my college and I told these guys, I said, I, I, just, I just feel like God's put me up on the shelf. I just, I just feel like he put me up on the shelf and he forgot me and I'm just, I'm just here waiting. And I remember at that Bible study, these guys, they just came around me and they prayed for me. And they prayed a word of encouragement into my life and they just asked God to reveal his plan for me and to give me hope. Friends, you want to know something? 
that very next weekend, I'm at my parents' house watching the Minnesota Vikings game. I kid you not, five minutes after the game ended, my phone rang. And on the other end of the line was a woman I had never talked to. Her name was Jeannie Schaff. She's from Salem Baptist Church in New Brighton. And she said, Jason, we need a youth pastor. Somebody gave us your name. Said you might be interested. That phone call began a chain of events that changed my life. It brought me into the pastorate, gave me a heart to serve the church, led me to where I am right here at Lakes Free today. See, friends, God always shows up for his people. It might not happen in the time frame that we think it should, but God knows best, and he always shows up, and he always comes through. And this is why it's in the midst of our doubts that we need to trust in the promises of God. We need to hold on to the promises promises like the one we saw last week, Isaiah 41, 13, for I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Promises like Romans 8, 28, where the apostle Paul says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. <laughs> Friends, no matter your doubts, no matter your fears, no matter your failures, God hasn't forgotten you. He never could, and he never will. And this leads me to point number three today. God has offered a proof of his never-ending love for us. You've heard of mathematical proofs. God has theological proofs. God's offered a proof of his never-ending love for us. In verses 15 through 18, God declares to the nation of Israel, how can I forget you? How can I forget you? And then God shares these two great illustrations of his unending love with the people of Israel. He says, could a mother forget the baby nursing at her breast? I mean, I, ladies, I can't relate to that imagery, but I know for a fact that when you are nursing a brand new little baby, there's nothing more important to you. There's no greater priority in your life than taking care of that child. I remember, well, I can't relate to that image. I, I know the love of a parent for their little baby. I remember taking our kids to the nursery the first time at church. I, I kid you not, I probably got up from the sermon about three times to, to go to the bathroom and I just happened to sneak a little peek in the nursery to make sure my kids were okay. Friends, when you're a parent and you love your child, you could never forget him. God says that's how his love is for us. And then God goes on and he tells the nation of Israel, he says to Zion, I have you engraved on the palms of my hands. Well, that's kind of weird. What is that all about? Friends, do you know that historians tell us that when the Jews were sent into exile in Babylon, many of the men, many of the Jewish men would literally tattoo the image of the walls of Jerusalem into the palms of their hands so that they would never forget where they came from, so that they would never forget where their true home was. God says to Israel, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. I've got you tattooed on my very hands. You're ever before me. Now, friends, I I've never had a tattoo, so I can't relate to that 
image at all either. But I'll tell you what, when I was 12 years old, my dad took me to a baseball card show and I got to meet one of my heroes, Kirby Puckett. You guys remember Kirby Puckett, the great Hall of Fame center fielder from the Minnesota Twins? I got to meet Kirby Puckett. I shook his hand. He gave me an autograph and I walked away from that autograph table. I told my dad, I am never washing this hand again. And I went for days. I did everything I could to keep from washing that hand because that hand had shook Kirby Puckett's hand. And I wanted to always remember it. Friends, you know something? God is never going to wash your image off the palm of his hand. You're always in his mind. You're always on his heart. And you're ever in his thoughts. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, Psalm 139, 17 and 18. Look what King David says. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you are still with me. (laughs) Friends, have you been down to the beach lately? Have you tried counting the grains of sand? David says that God's thoughts about you outnumber all the grains of sand. You're always on his mind, and he'll never forget you. I want you to notice something else about this engraving on God's God's palms here. God says, I haven't you engraved on my palms, but notice in the engraving on God's palms, the walls of Zion are still standing. The Israelites have been sent into exile. Jerusalem's been destroyed. The walls have been torn down. But on God's palms, the walls are there. They've been rebuilt. They've been restored. And friends, why is this significant? It's significant because what God wants you to see in this imagery is the promise that no devastation is too big for God. No wreckage is beyond repair. And even the most sin-ravaged life can be restored by our great God. So no matter where you are in life today, no matter how wrecked things may seem, no matter the chaos you find yourself in, know this, friends. God sees what is. But he also sees his plan, what will be. And his plans are always good. So hope in him. Let me close with a passage of scripture we looked at a few weeks ago, but I think it's just a powerful word to conclude this sermon this morning. It comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verses 27 through 31. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and he increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord, they will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will not walk and not be faint. Hope in the Lord today, friends. He hasn't forgotten you, and he never will. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these powerful promises that we see in your word. 
We thank you for your faithfulness, first to Israel and delivering them and bringing them Messiah, and how through that, Lord, even we today have salvation through Jesus Christ. We thank you, God, for your faithfulness in all things. And Lord, even when we doubt and question your presence in our lives, your work in our lives, your faithfulness, Lord, may we be reminded that we are ever before you, we are always in your thoughts, we are always on your heart, and you always have a plan in all things, God. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And Lord, may we trust in that, even in our darkest days. May we know that you are good, and we can hope in you, and you will mount us up on wings like eagles. We will run and not grow weary. We will not walk and not be faint. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.